The Bible is rich with names and titles which God uses of himself. He calls himself Creator, Redeemer, the Holy One, King, Savior. In addition to these kinds of names and titles, there are numerous metaphors of God. Now, those of you who are still in English grammar know that a metaphor is a figure of speech. A metaphor is a figure of speech in which one thing is likened to another different thing by being spoken of it as if it were that thing. Our earlier chorus that we've just sung employs three metaphors for God. He's my rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. In him will I trust. Tonight I'd like for us to think about this metaphor for God, the rock. The Lord, our rock. Would you open your Bible, please, to the book of Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter. Deuteronomy 32 is actually a poem or a song that was written by Moses. And if you look through the entire poem, you find out that the rock is the key theme to it. It's the main name by which he identifies God. We're just going to read the first four verses, though, tonight. Moses says, Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the, wor- the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass and as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. God is called here the rock. What is the significance of this biblical metaphor for God? I'd like for us to think about that for just a few minutes tonight and then we'll be on our way. I'd like to suggest in the first place that there is a prophetic significance to the Lord our rock. I'd like to give you a list of seven scriptures. These seven scriptures will help you trace the theme of the Lord, our rock, prophetically through the Bible. In other words, though we may look at some other scriptures, and though there are many other scriptures that use this name for God, if you'll just remember these seven, you'll be able to outline prophetically the significance of the name, the Lord, our rock. We begin by going to the first place in the Bible where it's used, and that is in the book of Genesis, the 49th chapter and the 24th verse. We have here a record of Jacob's blessings upon his sons. Before he died, he gathered them around, as was the patriarchal manner of that day. And he laid his hands upon them, and he spoke blessings to them. And of course, among the sons, now restored to him, were was Joseph. And in verse 22, he speaks of Joseph. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bough 
a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. I remember he's speaking poetically. He's using the license of a poet here to describe his son and his family that he has seen. He goes on to say the archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. Who would the archers be? Well, if you know the life of Joseph, you know that those are his own brothers that Jacob has in mind. But his bow remained firm, and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from the God of your father who helps you. And you'll notice that in the middle of that particular sentence, there is a certain clause that is slipped in by the Holy Spirit. In parenthesis, at least in my translation, from there, that is, from the mighty one of Jacob, from that source, is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. This is the first occasion in the Bible of this name for God, calling him a rock or a stone. It is used prophetically here, pointing to the one who would come from the mighty one of Jacob and would be known as the shepherd, or as the stone or the rock of Israel. And of course, it is a messianic prophecy. It is a prophetic utterance pointing to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now as we think of this theme of the rock, we begin here. The next logical step would be in Exodus. I invite you to turn just a few pages to Exodus chapter 17. For those of you familiar with the Exodus of the people of Israel, will recall that there was a time in the wilderness when they were complaining about a lack of water. They thirsted and they grumbled against Moses. Verse 3. So verse 4, Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And so our second of seven stops is in Exodus chapter 17. And here we see prophetically again that the rock spoken of by Jacob would one day be smitten. It is very clear from the New Testament that what happened here in the striking of this rock was prophetic. In fact, it is a type. It is a picture of what would happen to the Messiah when he would come. He would be stricken. He would be smitten. But as a result of his being smitten, there would be made provision for the people of God. It is a picture of the sacrifice of Christ, the rock who followed them through the wilderness, according to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. By his sacrifice on the cross, when he was smitten, the Messiah supplied for the spiritual need of all of God's chosen people. From him flows the water 
of eternal life, the spiritual drink of God that thirsty sinners may come to and partake of and find their soul's need met. That is stop number two. But we turn ahead now to Psalm 118. And we find out something more about the rock in its prophetic significance. Psalm 118, verse 22. It says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. You say, well, what could that be speaking of? Well, again, we have the light of the New Testament to shine upon this Old Testament passage. For example, Matthew 21, 42. Our Savior himself refers to this text. In Acts 4, in verse 11, Peter draws upon this text. What is the significance of it prophetically? It is that the stone who was to come, the stone of Israel, the stone who was smitten, would be a stone that would be rejected by the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel or its leaders are the builders here who saw the stone and instead of putting it into place, they rejected it, they threw it aside, they did not want it. But it says that God has made that same stone the chief cornerstone. It's the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And so this stone was rejected by the nation of Israel. And of course, that all has to do with our Lord's ministry uh, culminating in his crucifixion. Now, if you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 14, we come to stop number 4. We see something more regarding Israel and this stone. Isaiah 8 and verse 14. In this chapter, Isaiah is speaking to the nation of Judah. Isaiah has produced a son which has been assigned to the nation. That judgment is coming upon them. His name is Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Now, you might try that for your child the next time around. I will put up three roses for anybody who names their child Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And a prophecy then followed, further confirming the fact that the nation was in deep trouble. And in verse 14, no, verse 13, let's back up. He says, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. In fact, they had more respect for the king of Assyria than they did for their own God. They were more concerned about what he might do or his power than they were the Lord. But Isaiah goes on to say, And he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. And so as we think of the stone or the rock prophetically, we must remember that the stone that was rejected by the nation also became to them a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense in Christ's first coming. Romans 9.32 speaks of this. 1 Corinthians 1.23 
the preaching of the cross is to the Jews a stumbling block. And so the Christ whom they rejected, that stone that they pushed aside and did not choose, then became a stone of stumbling to them as a people, and stumble they have. At this point, it's important for us to pick up a side theme in one sense, a central theme in another, and that's in 1 Peter. So we'll turn to the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, as we come to stop number 5. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4. Peter writes to Christians, to believers, to both Jews and Gentiles who have trusted in Christ. He says, And coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice or a chosen stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. And so we see that the stone that was prophesied and which was to be smitten which was rejected by the nation and which became a stone of stumbling to Israel, is actually now God's chosen stone in the church. God has made him the chief cornerstone, the foundation of the church, and the foundation of each one who places his faith in Christ, who comes to him as a living stone, as Peter says here. It was to Peter that Jesus said, And upon this rock I will build my church. Speaking there in Matthew 16 of that rock of his confession, of what he had said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, the nation rejected that truth. But Peter recognized it as true, having been taught it by God himself. And upon that confession of who Jesus was, Jesus says, and upon that rock I will build my church. If you are a Christian tonight, then your life rests upon this rock, Jesus Christ. The rejected stone has become the foundation stone of the church of the Lord. Now let's go back to the Old Testament once more, this time to the book of Daniel. And we have stop number six as we think of this theme. When you come to the book of Daniel, it's the second chapter. We don't have time to read here the whole dream which Nebuchadnezzar had. It's an interesting dream. It's a dream that speaks of things to come from that day and things that even touch upon our day. As a matter of fact, my opinion, for whatever that's worth, is that the amazing things that we see happening today in East Germany and Poland and parts of Europe are just helping to set the stage for some of the things that Daniel talks about in his prophecy. 
We're not going to go into that, though, tonight. In verse 31, though, Daniel, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, says, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. Now he, Daniel, describes what the king had seen. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You'd continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And in fact, that was Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And now Daniel goes on to describe the meaning and to interpret it. For time's sake tonight, we're going to go down to verse 44, skip over part of the interpretation. It says, And in the days of those kings, that is, the latter kings, You see, the statue outlines the whole age that we call the times of the Gentiles. It lays out the great empires in Gentile world history. And he says, in the days of those kings, at the latter end of it all, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So what is all of this? Well, what Daniel interprets this dream to be, and God gives him the interpretation, is that that stone cut out without hands is the Lord, the Messiah. And he says there will come a time at the end of Gentile world domination when this stone will absolutely crush and destroy the Gentile powers accumulated through the centuries. And all of the Gentile glory and all of the Gentile world domination will cease and it will all amount to so much chaff. The wind will carry it away. And then that stone in the vision begins to swell and expand until that stone becomes itself a great mountain. And Daniel says that that mountain is the Lord's kingdom which he will establish. 
And so uh, leaving it at that point, stop number six tells us that this stone that was prophesied by Jacob, the stone of Israel, which would be smitten and provide salvation, this stone that would be rejected and become a stumbling stone to the nation of Israel, but the chief cornerstone for the church, that that stone would one day be the end of Gentile world domination and would establish the kingdom of the Lord upon the earth. Well, that's quite an expanse, quite a, quite a horizon of prophecy that we've looked at there. But there's one more reference to the stone that I think is important to look at, and that's Matthew chapter 21. As we think of the prophetic significance, <clears throat> and it is a warning. Jesus has referred in verse 42 to that text from Psalm 118. But in Matthew 21, in verse 44, well, let's begin in verse 43. He says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. He is talking now to the nation of Israel, its leaders, and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it, that is, really the church of Christ. And he says, he who falls on this stone, which one? The one rejected in verse 42, referring to himself. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. There is the solemn word of warning by Jesus himself that to reject him and thus to fall upon the stone and have the stone roll over on you is to be absolutely ruined. To reject him is to be crushed, as it were, under God's judgment. And so I plead with anyone tonight who is rejecting this rock, Jesus Christ, please understand that your rejection will lead you only to ruin. Oh, how great is the grace of God today that he allows you to come and partake freely of the water of life that he has provided through a sacrifice. But if, in fact, you turn away from that water, you will not drink of it, you will not believe on the Lord, then you leave yourself no recourse, no other destiny, but that this stone would fall upon you eventually and crush you in judgment. Flee from that judgment. Well, so much for the prophetic significance of of this theme. I'd like just in closing to look at a couple of ideas regarding the practical significance of it. For this picture of a rock, the Lord our rock, provides a sense of security, protection, and stability for the child of God, the one who believes. In the first place, the Lord our rock is a rock of salvation to us. There are so many texts to look at, but would you turn back again to the Psalms in Psalm 40, where we have a wonderful word of David. He says in verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, 
making my footsteps firm. The Lord is a rock of salvation. And one who believes in him knows the meaning of being lifted up from the pit of destruction, from the miry clay of sin, and having his feet set solidly on rock. I can remember as a kid, after heavy rainstorms, going out into our cow lot. Now, if you've been raised on a farm, you know a little bit of what that's like. I can remember having hip boots on that were too big for me. And when I would walk out there where there were normally cattle and sheep and other kinds of animals, after a heavy rain, I would sink down into that mud. Two inches, four inches, six inches. So much so that on one occasion I walked right out of my boots. And then what do you do? You can't get back into them very quickly because you're so dirty. What a great feeling it was after walking across the cow lot in that mud and finding yourself just lifting each foot with effort to step upon the rock that led us into the barn. Kind of a stepping stone up into the barn itself. And to be free from that extra weight, that pull, that mire of the mud. Oh, and so it is when we come to the Savior, we are released from that mire, from that pull downward that holds us. And we are set free and there is solid footing for us. The Lord, our rock, is a rock of salvation. In the second place, the Lord, our rock, is a rock of strength. Look in Psalm 18. Verses 1 and 2. For the child of God, the Lord is a rock of strength. Again, David. I love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. You'll notice that these verses have been used for a number of the scripture songs that we enjoy singing, including the one that we sang earlier tonight, verse 2. He says, The Lord is my strength, he is my rock, and my fortress, my deliverer. He goes on in this psalm, we don't have time to read it all, it's a long psalm. But he explains, he elaborates upon what the Lord, his strength, enables him to do. Especially beginning in in verse uh, 28 and on. He talks about uh, God being his light. He says, For by thee I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. And he goes on to explain what God strengthens him to do. What this really is, is no more than an Old Testament elaboration of Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through Christ to what? Who strengthens me because the Lord is the rock of strength. Then we have touched upon this but in 1 Corinthians 10.4 there is the word that the Lord is the rock that followed Israel through the wilderness. The rock who provided, which provided spiritual drink that they all shared in. Let me just say that the Lord, our rock, is a rock of supply. 
You and I have, by His grace, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We have provision for our earthly journey. Just as Israel was ministered to, in a spiritual sense, by this rock, throughout their years, their decades of wandering in the wilderness, so as you and I, as pilgrims in this wilderness world walk, we have a rock who ministers supply to us. We have the fullness of spiritual drink that comes from Him that nourishes us in the inner man. And finally, let me say by way of practical significance that the Lord our rock is the rock of safety. The rock of safety. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 32 for our final text tonight. Verses 1 and 2, Isaiah again is speaking of the Messiah here in his kingdom. And he says, Behold, a king will reign righteously, Isaiah 32, and princes will rule justly, and each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. Isaiah is thinking here of a rock that provides shelter. If you're walking through wilderness and that sun is beating down upon you and you are thirsty and you are looking for escape, what do you do? You go to that rock that is higher than you are, that rock that gives a shadow and you rest in the shadow of that rock. It becomes to you a rock of safety. Our Lord is to us a rock of safety from the wrath of God, a rock of safety from the conflicts of life. And so as we think of the Lord our rock, rejoice tonight if you're a Christian. Rejoice that He is to you the rock of salvation. He is the rock of strength, the rock of supply, and the rock of safety a shelter in the time of storm. There is, of course, a hymn that is written on that theme, The Lord's our rock, in him we hide, a shelter in the time of storm. Secure whatever ill betide, a shelter in the time of storm. O rock divine, O refuge dear, a shelter in the time of storm. Be thou our helper ever near, a shelter in the time of storm. Or there is that great hymn written a couple of hundred years ago now by Augustus Toplady. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Or the hymn by W.O. Cushing written just 110 years ago. <clears throat> written in a time in his life when he said no one in the world could know the struggles and the conflicts he was going through. But during that time... He came upon some of the truths we've talked about tonight in the Word and penned these words, O oh, safe to the rock that is higher than I, my soul in its conflicts and sorrow would fly. So sinful, so weary, thine, thine would I be. Thou blessed rock of ages, I am hiding in thee. How oft in the conflict, when pressed by the foe, I have fled to my refuge and breathed out my woe. How often, 
when trials like sea billows roll, have I hidden in thee, O thou rock of my soul. And then we have the hymn in our own hymnal, He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock, a wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. I'd like for us to close tonight by singing another one using this same theme, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, number 340 in your hymnal. And I would hope tonight that this is, in fact, where your faith is resting. If you do not know the meaning of salvation, if your life is not upon the solid rock that God has provided, you can trust Him. You can believe on Him, just as those who testified tonight so eloquently. You can come to know Him, and you will find your feet lifted from the miry clay and put upon that solid rock. Well, let's stand together as we sing number 340, the first verse. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. We talked earlier about the prophetic significance of the rock. Let's sing the last verse that talks about the time when he will come with trumpet sound. Fourth verse. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, is sinking sand all other ground is sinking sand well as you go home tonight be thinking about this theme won't you the Lord our rock and realize afresh what a foundation he's put under your life by his grace let's bow together in prayer and if there be someone here without the Savior tonight, I'll be here and others will be around. Our pastors would be happy to talk with you about your spiritual need or call us this week, won't you? Father, thank you for the theme of the rock. Oh, Lord, we love you. You are our strength. You are our rock, our shelter. We rejoice tonight in all that you are to your people and all that you offer to all who will come in faith and believe. As we go from here tonight, may we rejoice on that foundation that we have heard about and sung about, and may we stand and stand secure and solidly and strong this week upon the rock Jesus Christ. 
And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.